Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. In this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Rebecca Brown, who founded Empowder in 2019. Well, that's when she began the work. But actually, she launched her product in September of 2020 after her own personal journey into the menopause. We'll be discussing her 20-year career as a researcher and how she came about founding her brand. Rebecca, welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast. Delighted to be here. So I think that one of the things people will be really, really interested in is is how you came to launch your own brand um, and how you built that. But let's go back to the beginning and see if there's anything in your early days that gave you this entrepreneurial spirit. (laughs) So in in your school days, uh, how would you describe them? Were you entrepreneurial? I wouldn't say I was an entrepreneurial uh, person, um, but I was a very diligent and curious person. So um, I really enjoyed my sort of my whole time actually in academia. So from from, from a very early age onwards, um, and I, I think I was always very driven and just very curious, curious about sort of life, curious about subject matter. And I think curiosity is often something that links um, entrepreneurs. And so, how how did that curiosity manifest itself? Sort of deep diving into very, very single-minded um, projects that would, would obsess me for, you know, six to 12 months before I moved on to something else equally as important and um, obs- that I'd get equally as obsessed about. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not a brilliant um, juggler, but I, if I love something, I become absolutely focused on that one thing until I've exhausted everything there was to know about it. And so tell us from your school days, what were you focused on? What were those things that sort of grabbed your curiosity? Gosh, I, I mean, I have many. I mean, my, my sort of, um, I guess, ambition, if you can, you can call it that, but because um, I think when you're young, your understanding of what careers and opportunities are out there are quite limited. You know, if I think back to my career discussions, you know, most of us were sort of either driven towards gardening or being a teacher or, or, or a doctor. They seem to be the main things that uh, you used to get recommended based on your sort of um, scores on various questions. Um, but what I felt I wanted to do when I was at school was, was become an actress. So I became very obsessed um, with theatre. I became very obsessed with certain um, performers that I, I wanted to emulate and follow in the footsteps of. I followed authors. I wrote to playwrights that I thought really needed my feedback. Um, uh, on their works um, and that that obsessed me for quite some time I also became quite obsessed with different artists at different points in life um, and again and sort of um, meticulously researched them went to museums around Europe when I could afford it um, you know read everything about their lives and what motivated them um, so I guess those are my main threads going through school was that leaning towards the arts and a and an obsession with various individuals or, or themes or genres um, as I as I grew up. And so what did you study as you went through academia? I did end up doing uh, drama and English at uh, uni. So I did a joint honours degree and I was definitely that person behind the scenes. And that's probably where my 
sort of research bug began. So I was that person who, who thought it was really good fun to go and get all the books that were available in the library. Obviously, I'm old enough to have done my degree pre-internet, so you used to have to book the journals and book the chapters that you were interested in reading out. Um, so I was that annoying person that would book all of the ones out that everyone else wants to read. And, and, and I like nothing better than kind of wading through reams and reams of insight and information and perspective in order to come to a point of view and to present that point of view in essay. So I became... I guess that sort of obsession with things served me quite well at university. I became very focused on um, sort of delivering very thorough essays and actually spent most of my time behind the scenes. So that, although it was a performative degree, there was a lot of practical. I was always happiest behind the scenes, whether that was researching sort of stage management or set design. I was definitely in the shadows rather than, than, than pursuing that acting um, obsession by that point. So as well as being curious, would you describe yourself as an obsessive? Yes, I think that's probably fair. Um, and I think, you know, people that uh, live and, and uh, love me uh, would say that I am quite an obsessive person. If I get something that I feel very passionate about, I will see it through um, to the end. Um, and that can make me quite difficult. It can make me quite single-minded um, as an individual as well. Um, but yeah, I, I would say the obsessive label is a fair one. And, and so when you were going through academia and you thought that this um, possible career in the arts might be for you, who, who was inspiring? Was anybody inspiring you towards that? My grandfather actually was a, um, a sort of frustrated academic. He uh, grew up at a time when very few people got to university um, at all. And he inspired me not a lot. He, he was a very well-read man, a self-taught man. And uh, you know, at the beginning of each academic year, I would send him my reading list and he would effectively compete with me. He was a very competitive man as well, uh, but he would read everything on my reading list. And, and we would talk, you know, again, in the days of payphones, I would call him on a Sunday afternoon and we would talk through what I was studying and, and different angles. He, he was the first person to take me to the theatre. He had like some kind of friends of um, uh, membership with uh, the Royal Opera House. So I used to go and sit with him on a Saturday and sit up in the gods and watch all of the stage set coming on while they were doing the rehearsals. We used to eat cheese sandwiches and drink from his thermos. And so he, he was probably my my inspiration in terms of, of genuine enjoyment of um, the arts and, and, and um, academia and kind of that intellectual discussion being okay, because it wasn't necessarily something that as a teenager was, was, was celebrated amongst my peer group. So I always felt a bit of an outlier, um, but he, he really encouraged uh, that love for me. And I think my, my grandmother as well, my maternal grandmother, um, she taught me that I remember going to galleries very early on with her and she taught me that you could just pop in and just see one piece of art, you know, and just, and that was enough. You didn't have to do that thing that I think I'd learned through school where you'll get dragged around for four hours and slowly lose the will to live. Um, and uh, she just, just used to say, just pop in, you know, treat it as, as clothes shopping, pop in, stand in front of a painting that interests you and then leave. Um, so yes, they, they both were really influential, I think, in my, yeah, in, a, in sort of an enriched life really. And, and can I ask, would you describe yourself as competitive? I think I, I I'm not very confident um, in terms of sort of placing myself in competitive environments. When I look back at my career, I didn't sort of compete for key roles or compete for sort of access into companies where perhaps my career should have gone if I was taking a sort of competitive trajectory up. But I think I'm quite competitive with myself. So back to that kind of obsessive. Gene, I tend to 
want to see something through and be quite hard on myself if I don't see it through to the standards that I would expect. And, and so let's kind of step on from your time in, in, in academia, which you clearly loved and enjoyed, mm. it played to your strengths. So what did you decide to do then? You, you got your degree, um, what came next? Well, I, I thought the world really needed um, a, uh, a thesis on the link between feminist theatre and Greek mythology. Um, so in a very self-important um, phase of my life, I decided that I needed to go back and do an MA and a PhD. Luckily for the world, um, the course was cancelled, actually. <laughs> so I ended up travelling for a while and kind of weighing up whether I would go back into academia a year later. Um, but I think like a lot of people, I, I came back from travelling, needed to earn some money and kind of fell into research fell into marketing um, which is where my sort of career began so I didn't I didn't make a conscious decision to sort of take that curious analytical brain into research and marketing it kind of happened by accident I came back and, and what I thought I was going to be doing wasn't available to me for a while and as you were saying it was kind of a I guess a strength in the sense that I, I was that person who liked noodling and, and learning about stuff and and that that became an easy way for me to start my career. And, and was the travelling good? Did you enjoy that break between studying and work? I did. I, I loved it. We went to China. So, you know, in, sort of like this is 95, 1995. So it's a relatively brave decision. Um, we were incredibly naive, you know, as a mother myself with, with um, adult kids. I don't think I would let my son do what we did. But we, um, we sort of just arrived with our rough guide and thought that everything would be okay and actually it was I mean I think it taught me a lot about um you know the generosity of people and and again I loved I loved the culture element of that journey and I kind of grew up I grew up a lot on on, on that traveling um and I came back ready to ready to earn some money and so uh, how did you earn that money who did you go and work for well I, I started you know again sort of looking back and thinking about it I'm sure this is often the case when you when you talk to people it was a very you know it's a series of, of conversations and saying yes to stuff that I didn't necessarily have any real understanding as to where those yeses would lead me so I ended up coming back to London um, when I returned from China um, lodging with my aunt because I had no money um, taking a free um, internship where I was doing some research for a marketing agency in Limehouse um, which is sort of before the development of uh uh, Canary Wharf and all of that it was quite a bleak journey to do that journey from North London each day um, but I became interested in um, in the way that research can inform understanding around consumer habits and then my first sort of paid for role was actually working for um, an agency called Evans Hunt Scott and they at the time were working for the Labour Party so my first real job uh, was the 97 election campaign um, so working on um, the campaign that you know effectively led to quite a fundamental change in the way that politics happened and was perceived with Tony Blair entering so it's an amazing baptism of, of fire for me I learned a lot about how people think um, I learned an awful lot about how you influence uh, how people think in terms of how media works and, and also what happens behind the scenes from a political point of view so it's a you know a phenomenal role to have as a, as, a, as a sort of a first proper job and I learn a huge amount. So I think that maybe a few people listening will be thinking but what is a researcher what does a researcher do so in the context of that 
97 election and Tony Blair winning and working for the Labour Party. Just, just tell the listeners what you did as a researcher and how that played a part. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. And, and there are so many different sort of threads to research. So at that point in my career, really, I was a, a glorified doer. So I did whatever was, was, was needed within that team, within that project team, working on the fundraising efforts for the Labour Party. But my role in terms of that sort of um, research element was to understand the impact that the media headlines were having on the way that people responded in support for a political party. So we would look at everything from the language being used on that morning's uh, paper to the imagery used in the fundraising ad that may be sitting bottom bottom left of the, uh, you know, the broadsheet, for example, we learned things like, you know, how much more uh, membership would happen as a result of Tony Blair's image being there versus a copy heavy piece of advertising. Um, we learn whether sort of provocative responses to the day before's headline uh, generated more interest or less, you know, whether people were looking for a combative response to uh, the political debate that was raging at the time, or whether they were actually looking for a sort of um, a clean approach to politics where you raise above the sort of melee of, um, of, of, of mud slinging. Um, so we looked at all of that and then, you know, I learned sort of incredible um, planners uh, as to, you know, how how the world was thinking at the time you know what 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 macro trends were taking place globally um that were influencing the way people were thinking about politics and the labor party campaign as, as i'm sure many of your listeners will be aware took quite a lot of its inspiration from the clinton election campaign so there were elements of us also working alongside what was happening uh, or had happened in america so it was a it was an age where people were learning more and more about the impact of data on understanding how people thought. And the agency in question, Evans Hunt Scott, were also the company that did an awful lot with Tesco Club Card. So there's a kind of commercial element happening alongside where we were learning about how people think and behave in terms of politics, but also I had access to learning about how people think and behave and the impact that has on the, on the way they spend, you know, what was in their shopping basket each week. So it was a, what researchers do is, um, they can be focused on the data in that way, um, and they can be looking at um, the, the, the way that the world influences the way we think. And then as I transition through my career into the role of a creative planner, it's much more about sort of anticipating trends, looking at the future and what we feel are going to be the key discussion points and, and, and understanding, you know, how the world will need to adapt in order to, um, to sort of support wants and needs in, in consumers. And, and so when you say you you look at those things and you decide if they worked or how they work. How, how do you do that? Do you, do you go and talk to somebody in the street or um, how, how do you go about finding out? Yeah, they, I mean, uh, a researcher has sort of many tools that they can they can work with and it's evolved significantly, obviously, with the advent of, of online um, dialogue. It makes it makes that sort of um, democratization of, of research a lot easier. Um, but at the time when I was working for the Labour Party, it was very much about focus groups. And as you say, talking to the person in the street. So you'd have everything from um, broad brushstroke um, polls and information gathering on a macro scale, which would work alongside more focused um, discussions, maybe with a panel of 15 individuals and you would go and travel around the country and listen to the conversations that were taking place. And from a creative point of view, you know, you would look to share with them 
some of the themes and the messaging you were, you were looking to bring to life and, and kind of encourage discussion around what people's initial responses to those um, executions would be. So sort of there's a blend of narrative uh, and sort of qualitative and quantitative research tools that, that um, you'll often find researchers use. And that, as I say, in sort of the last five to 10 years has exploded with the advent of, of online opportunities. And now you can be much more real time in the way that you get feedback and you can be much, much broader in the conversations and the people that you reach uh, in the research that you do. So do you think research is better nowadays? I think it is better. I mean, I think one of the biggest um, criticisms of research, which is entirely fair, is that it hasn't been uh, democratic enough. You know, there's huge um, swathes of, of um, the population who aren't involved in research panels, who aren't interested in coming along to a discussion, you know, about, I don't know, a vegan food brand after work one evening. You know, it just doesn't, you don't reach people uh, broadly and, um, uh, and you, don't, you don't deliver accessibility in those kind of tools where it's often face-to-face -face, um, discussion. And I think there's an opportunity to do better um, with some of the online tools that are now available to us. But I think, um, you know, when you look at sort of thinking about politics in this particular moment of time as well, you know, I think, I think what researchers are often not very good at is with the advent of all of these online tools and polls, what we forget is the way that the mind works and the way that people respond to questions. And there's something about narrative research and working face-to-face -face and having those conversations on the street that I actually find far more useful than some of the online tools that are now very popular, but can be incredibly inaccurate because someone's saying, yes, they voted one way doesn't necessarily mean they did vote that way or someone saying they believe in one thing doesn't necessarily mean they actually believe in that thing and so you have to be very careful as a researcher in terms of the way that you interpret data and I think perhaps the criticism I'd have of some of the digital tools we have available to us now is you're one step removed from humanity effectively and, and, it, and, and you, so you lose that sort of nuance that you get when you actually are able to have a you know, proper conversation like, like we're having now where you pick up all kinds of cues that aren't spoken. And, and when you look back at that first paid for job, what do you remember of it? What do you remember of your managers and how you felt about the world of work? I mean, I was incredibly keen because I was very lucky to get a job that I believed passionately in. So I was politically motivated and thrilled to be you know, part of what I felt was a real movement for change at the time. We kind of forget what politics was like before the Blair years. And although, you know, um, there were all kinds of criticisms about his time in government, it, it was a period of, of quite dramatic change uh, for us as a country, culturally. So I, I was incredibly excited. I was also incredibly tired because um, I think, I hope it's changed within the agency world um, as, as, and across corporate culture in terms of learning about mental health, particularly with young staff members. But I always worked incredibly hard. You know, I, it would be pretty normal to do a 15, 18 hour day. Um, and, you know, the, all of the terminology about what we were doing at the time was, was sort of almost um, glorifying that work ethic of, of, of burnout effectively, you know, so we worked in what was called the war room, we had to respond within 24 hours because it was an election campaign, you know, everything was about pace and, and, and um, sort of almost like achieving the unachievable. So those memories, I think, I mean, they, they definitely taught me a work ethic, but I don't know if they're necessarily uh, healthy habits um, that I've almost had to unlearn over time uh, and in terms of my manager he was a really inspirational guy he was he was incredibly young so he gave me a real sense of ambition because he was promoted for talent as opposed to earning his stripes through sort of age or time he was just incredibly brilliant and he taught me 
all kinds of things, but he was incredibly hard on me, but incredibly fair. So he, he taught me how to manage as well. And what do you remember from that? What stuck with you? Um, a few instances stick with me. I remember that, um, you know, again, I feel like I'm an old woman here, but in the olden days, uh, we used to obviously get proofs through. So you get, you know, if you were running, if you can imagine running um, uh, a campaign for the next day's uh, press, you know, there'd be, there'd be sort of maybe a hundred different variations of the same ad and they all have to say something slightly different and have a slightly different code and be trackable because of that code and so you have to have a real eye for detail in the role that I was supporting uh, them in at the time and he had a sort of like an ongoing bet with me that if I ever handed over proof where well, I'd ringed and read absolutely every error and he didn't need to uh, find anything then he would give me a bottle of champagne and I kind of I earned that sort of in month three but you know it was that kind of he made that diligence something to aspire towards and he did it with a you know with a, with a smile so I remember that and his 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 message to me is always you know I shouldn't have to find anything you know as your boss you should you, when you present something to me for me to approve you should be absolutely confident and there's nothing else to find um, so I think you know that moment sticks in my my head and also he he was very generous when I left, you know, and I think that stayed with me as well, that kind of sense of, of um, you know, making the, the goodbye a good goodbye, because all I have in terms of memories of that company and him is, is a real sense of, of um, you know, thankfulness for the whole experience. Whereas I think sometimes when you train people up and they leave you before you want them to leave you, and I definitely left him before it was convenient for them, but he did it with such, you know, generosity that um, that stayed with me as well as a lesson. So, so from there, just talk us through then your, your researching career and then we'll get on to you giving it all up and setting up um, M-Powder. Um, so I kind of, yeah, I segued into, you know, again, another unuseful title is, is Creative Planner. So I, the majority of my career actually was within the sort of the, the team in, a, in an agency that sits between the creative, the people that actually execute designs and brilliant ideas and the project management team who sort of set the brief and, and um, the relationship with the client and the expectations around deliverables. So I found a very nice spot for myself, which I, I adored where I was able to bring in some of that, I guess, love of arts and culture uh, into my day-to-day -day role where it was still a research base, but it was very much about the ideas of tomorrow, you know, and spotting what brands should be talking about, you know, how they could connect with the, <clears throat> the emotional um, drivers of, of consumers. And so um, after the Labour Party, I had a, a brief segue, which was another passion project into working for a charity. Um, but then from that point onwards, I returned to the kind of corporate agency field and worked with, you know, some phenomenal brands. So I worked for a very long time for Volvo Cars, looking at their sustainability um, programs looking at how their brand should represent itself and that was a fascinating role because as a creative planner because it's a lot more lyrical in terms of the output you're delivering it's less data orientated and more around the themes that you can see emerging in culture so for example Volvo at the time was struggling with the fact that they were a premium priced car um, and at the time premium meant quite self orientated you know so you'd look at BMW you'd look at the Audis and it was all about performance and the individual success 
um, metrics that sort of showed to the world how well you were doing. And Volvo was a sort of anomaly. It was a Swedish car brand that was quite uncomfortable with, with uh, celebrating its own success. And the Swedes, you know, can, can be, um, you know, their sort of very democratic view means that they're not that comfortable with, with outliers. Uh, they've got what they call the tools poppy syndrome. They're not very com comfortable when people rise too high. Um, and what we did with our research was, was unearth this, this appeal actually in the premium space for the concept of we, as in us and collective experience as being a premium um, uh, desirable attribute to work towards. So it was in the very early age, I guess, of recognizing that experience was equally as valuable as material possessions. And that allowed Volvo to transition from trying to compete in terms of performance, which it really was never gonna do, to actually becoming a brand that you aspire to be part of because all the best conversations happened within a Volvo car. You know, when people come together, they get into a Volvo and they go and they do that ski trip or they do that surf trip. Or, and we, we made that into the kind of proposition that, that has driven Volvo subsequently uh, to become a global premium brand. But, but that's kind of an example, I guess, of, of research being the fundamentals of it. But then the, the thing I loved about being a creative planner was being able to overlay it with a, a lyrical thought that was reflective of what we saw was happening in society. So you did that. And then how many agencies did you work for? Well, I actually um, ended up running a couple. So I, um, I became um, a senior planner and then transitioned to a small agency that didn't have a planning department. Um, and it was there that I became a manager and then an MD of a company. So I, I ended up running this agency on behalf of the founders who were both very talented creatives. And my job was to build out the planning and the research side to their creative offering. Um, and we sold that as a business into Lowy in 2007. So I suppose I never look at that as an entrepreneurial move by me because it was a very established business that actually just didn't realize its own value. You know, they needed someone else to come in and say, you know, the stuff you do is beautiful. And you're definitely not charging enough. Um, and then sort of build out the planning, which, which often gives creatives the rationale for the value that they're delivering. Um, so I really enjoyed that as a role. And that took me into, as I say, managing, helping to create culture, helping to build businesses and, and taking a lot of the lessons I'd learned, I guess, in terms of that, you know, that earlier manager who, who inspired me when I was working on the Labour Party, right through to what I'm doing now. It taught me about the importance of, of, of looking after the people within the business, um, the importance of managing expectations with, with clients. And so I, I stayed there for some time until we sold in 2007. And then prior to Empowder, I was running, you know, my own small planning consultancy for 10 years. So when you look back at the moments that brought you up to Empower, and we'll talk in a minute about, you know, all the things that, that drove you to set up your business now. Um, you've got curiosity, you've got obsession and drive. You've got this inquiring mind for what people are thinking and where they're going. You've worked with managers that have inspired you. You've progressed into running departments and then running whole businesses. So to what extent do you think that equipped you for doing what you're doing now? I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, again, looking back, isn't it? Because as, as we were saying at the beginning of this conversation, I just felt like I said yes to stuff. I didn't really ever have a sort of very clear plan as to what I was going to do. Um, but looking back, I think perhaps the, the important elements um, that have informed Empowder have been the desire to listen, 
you know so that's what is instilled in us as, as researchers but I think also as a good manager and as a good um, company owner that ability to actually listen without prejudice and genuinely hear what's being said uh, is what drives culture and what drives good good business um, and so it was very natural for me when I when I started my own perimenopause transition when I realized how little was was out there for women the first thing I wanted to do was to talk to more women to understand you know whether whether my experience was unusual and I, and I guess from that a very natural organic uh, community grew and then from that a very natural organic brand evolved to to, to what we, we we launched this year. Looking back in terms of setting up your current business and what you're doing is there anything you would have liked to have done in the past that you think might have even better equipped you? I think um, one of the things that I would have liked to have, have um, experienced is um, probably more sort of clinical research experience, which is quite a different discipline. You know, I, I segued swiftly from, from sort of data analysis into creative planning, which I loved. But I think looking now at the way that we're building out our product offering, for example, and the, and the desire to ensure that there's a robust clinical basis to, to the recipes that we develop, learning about how that works. I have, a, I have a very basic understanding of it because I've often been aligned to those um, type of researchers and, and, and those kind of practices, but I never really got the opportunity to go in and get under the bonnet. You know, it was, it was stuff that was reported to me. And I think uh, just because of the nature of what we're doing now, that kind of experience would have been incredibly useful to me. Okay, so let's talk about M-Powder. So uh, you gave up your, your um, previous job a year ago um uh you started to do lots of research um and you launched your product in september and it's obviously based on a personal journey for you uh started with the perimenopause um we had uh, liz earl on one of our early podcasts and she yeah. talked a lot about uh, the perimenopause and the menopause in fact i went with my wife to listen to her talk in um Charlesbury. And um, I think she had about 150 women in the audience and I was the only man. So I've, <laughs> I've kind of, I, I, I've, I've sort of got a, a degree of understanding, but I think what would be really helpful for our listeners is for you just to talk through your story, which is an amazing story and how it's brought you to now bring this product to market for the benefit of all women. So how, how did it start? Well, it, it's, it, it started as it does for you know the vast majority of women in the western world in that i was i was running an agency i was loving being my my planning person my planning head on um and um i started to feel unwell uh and and the way that it manifested itself which worried me most based on all of you all of our discussions we've had so far in terms of obsessive uh, um characteristics and also that kind of benchmark and competitiveness i tend to have with myself i i began to notice i just I just wasn't able to do my job in the way that I'd done it um, all my career. I felt I felt uh, less confident going into meetings. I felt really nervous about presenting research findings. Um, all of the things I kind of loved and felt quite comfortable doing because I'd done them for so long, I, I lost my my confidence for. And um, that you know, so that sort of emotional um, self doubt and anxiety really really started to stop me being able to perform my job and I was running a small business and, and it was really noticeable to me and the way that I managed it was just by working harder and harder so again going back to our conversation about 
what I learned from my first job. I think that that work ethic and that sort of um, belief that you just have to push on through in order to deliver didn't serve me well at that particular moment in life. So, you know, I probably um, overworked um, in the early stages. I didn't realize I, that what I was experiencing was a perimenopause because so much of it felt psychological. I was aware that my skin was changing. I was kind of putting on weight. I was, I was feeling kind of just gen, generally uncomfortable, but I, I had no idea that there was this biochemical stage that we go through before menopause and that it, it tends to happen at about 43, 44. I kind of, in my head, menopause was in your 50s and it was hot flashes and it, all of the sort of media narratives that we're fed. Um, I ended up going to the doctors, um, which is very rare for me. Um, but, and I felt like a fraud going in because, you know, really the conversation I had was uh, I just don't feel like me anymore. I've lost my confidence. I'm tired all the time. You know, I'm covered in teenage acne, which feels really unfair because I did have it as a teenager as well. Um, and my doctor was, was as ill-informed as I was. And that, again, isn't unusual, sadly. Um, so his diagnosis, which I can understand if you, if you look at how I arrived, um, in his surgery was that I was burnt out and that actually what I needed was some time away from the business to get well again. Um, and I probably would have sort of taken his advice and just gone and picked up some supplements. But what I knew inside myself was I wasn't depressed. And, and that's kind of what he was he sort of implying when he, he sort of gave me his diagnosis. He was kind of like, you know, go away, take some time out. And if you're still struggling, come back and we can look at some, some, some antidepressants uh, to support you. And I kind of knew that what I was struggling with wasn't depression um, and so I did go to the uh, health food store and uh, I wandered down the aisles I did a little bit of wiki googling uh, obviously with my research head on and I, I discovered this thing called the perimenopause which I hadn't even really heard about um, and with armed with that I thought well I'll, I'll buy some vitamins and some supplements and I'll, I'll start looking into how I can make myself feel well and Again, I guess with my researcher head on, what struck me when I went to purchase my, my supplements was just the sheer horror of being in what was effectively an end of life aisle uh, rather than a midlife aisle, where all of the, sort of the imagery, all of the stuff, you know, that closer I guess I'd spent my life fine tuning to affect the, the, you know, the audience that the product was designed to um, engage with fell off. You know, so if you look at a menopause supplement brand, they tend to be you know, to feature women with dentures, you know, in cornfields, uh, in, in comfy shoes. Uh, and that wasn't me or any of my peer group. And I couldn't understand why I'd read about this thing called the perimenopause. And yet there were no perimenopause products. There was just a menopause tablet I could take. And it felt like this whole sector had, had basically been left in the 1980s when we all took multivitamins without really understanding what we needed uh, nutritionally. And my curiosity kicked in. I, I couldn't work out why there wasn't more innovation and why there weren't more options available to women at this stage of life. Um, and that's really how Empowder began, almost by accident. So I started looking into what I needed to put on my plate to start feeling better from a sort of nutritional point of view. I started reading up about the, sort of the biochemical changes that the body goes through and the fact that there are three distinct ones and that really you shouldn't be looking at perimenopause as a menopause stage because what you need nutritionally at that point is quite different to what you need menopause and, and obviously postmenopause again a very very different um, biochemical uh, life stage that every woman goes through so as I started looking into all of that research and I guess getting well because I did start to feel better um, over time I started to realize that there's a real need for a more intelligent approach to this life stage and there's an element of, of mission and purpose I guess in what I was doing so I was quite cross um, that 
there really isn't that much available to women and there isn't uh, very much awareness or education out there currently. Uh, it, it is changing, but I think that's what drove me in the early stages where I just felt it was horribly unjust that I'd arrived at this life stage completely unprepared for what my body needed. And yet that was pretty much anyone in my peer group was, was having a similar sort of a wake up call that, to me. And then when you start looking at the stats and the fact that, you know, one in five women will leave the workplace because they feel unable to do their jobs, which is effectively what happened to me. And I was lucky. You know, I, I owned my business and I was able to take some time out and I was able to then decide to go. But had I been employed and feeling as, as underconfident in my ability to deliver as I was, I definitely would have left my job. You know, so I, 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 was, I was just fueled in those early months by this sense of, outrage and the fact that no one was talking about it and it, you know I, I, it became my mission then to develop something that would ensure that women in the future could have that education piece at their fingertips because it's out there but it's not very easy to find but also that there was some proper innovation taking place in terms of products available to women too. So so from personal experience you look for a product yeah you couldn't, you couldn't find it on the shelf so your research head kicked in and you thought there's a gap in the market here. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sure lots of people listening to this sitting at the kitchen table are thinking, oh, well, I, I think I uh, know where there's a gap in the market for a product. But, but what do you do then? Uh, what, what's, what's the next step, Rebecca? I think the, you know, the, there's many routes to innovation. And I think my, my sort of selected route was, again, based on my background as a researcher. So the first thing I did was look to validate my gut instinct that this was an untapped uh, opportunity and a sort of an underdeveloped marketplace. So I found it relatively easy almost to return to my toolkit as a researcher. So the first thing I did was go onto Instagram um, as, a, as a sort of fledgling brand and look to recruit women to tell their menopause stories to me. I wanted to understand what their experience in the doctor surgery was. I wanted to understand what products they tried and what they felt worked and what they felt didn't. What lifestyle interventions had they um, undertaken as a result of transitioning through menopause? And again, what worked and what didn't. And then we asked them what they wish their younger self had known about the menopause and a top tip in terms of uh, a tool that genuinely had, had made a difference in their lives. So it's a very sort of straightforward set of questions that allowed women to answer in free form so we didn't look to have you know black and white um, answers we, we we invited people to tell us in their own words and that for me as someone who spent I guess a, a large part of their career in the creative planning side of research meant that I wanted to understand the language they were using to describe this this transition I wanted to understand kind of like the fire in their belly whether they felt the injustice that I felt or whether they felt that, that was just the way the world worked and sort of from that, I got a sense of a community that, that felt the same as I did, um, that were looking for solutions that were more reflective of almost like the millennial brands that we've, we've been influenced by as women in our mid 40s. You know, what had really sort of struck me was there wasn't sort of the authentic collective feel of, of the brands I loved most in, in, in my life. It was like the minute I became menopausal stuff was sold to me, but there was no co-creation. There was no honesty about the efficacy of the products that I was buying. There was no sustainability angle. Um, there was no sense of purpose or common good behind any of the brands on those shelves. It felt really dated and out of kilter the way that I buy. And in doing the research, I got very much the same feeling from the community of women that were you know, kind enough to respond. 
And then from that, it became a very sort of collective approach to building out something that could potentially work. So I knew where my gaps were. I knew that, you know, my strength is, is research and understanding the macro trends and, and the, the things that the, the people are most concerned about in the world and looking at how, how that's going to evolve. That's kind of what I feel comfortable doing, what I love doing. But I'm not a, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a doctor. Uh, I'm not an R&D specialist. And so the next thing I needed to do was to find the people that would help me take all of that insight that I was gathering and shape, shape it into both products and programs and, and, you know, and a service offering to our community. So you, you described that in a sentence, the last bit, but I know it's far more complex than that. <laughs> so, you, you know, you're, you're, you're weighing up, am I already giving up my work and focusing on this? So there's thoughts about income. And then as soon as you start thinking about recruiting a team, it's how do you pay them? And then it's how you produce the product. So just talk to us a little bit more about that. I'm a great, I mean, I think, again, my experience as a, as a managing director of an agency was really helpful at this point. So anyone who works within the agency world will know that the brief is, is the most important part of the, the, the contract between a client and a, a creative body, because creativity is so intangible, you have to have down on paper what, what each party is expecting to get from the relationship and how that's going to be measured. Um, and that's actually really helpful as a principle when you're looking to pull in people to consult for you as a fledgling brand as I was uh, and also when you're sort of setting milestones out as a business I think that sense of a brief and a very clear contract between parties is is really helpful so in terms of, of my approach from from doing my research and, and working in the kitchen table and having a almost like a long list of what I felt was needed in the market to pulling on board experts that could help me refine and shape my offering I took the same approach. So I wrote a very, very prescriptive brief um, for each of the consultants that I was working with. And I also made a decision based very much on culture, um, which again, I think is something I perhaps learned within the creative industry. So much of um, the way that agencies work is around creating a culture where creativity thrives, you know, because it, it tends to get quite easily suppressed if the environment in which those people are thinking and, and, and developing ideas is too restrictive. And so as an MD, you're always very aware of how different people work and you become, again, I guess with my research head on, you become very focused on the way people are motivated and what reward structures work best for them and what working environments work best for them. So I think I was able to, you know, um, put a team around me where I knew that they were also the right people to be working with. So I didn't just partner with the first nutritionist I met, for example, I interviewed a lot of people and really the lady that I ended up going with, I went with one because she had a phenomenal CV, but also because I felt fundamentally she, she was behind the purpose that we were formulating as a business and that I, I just felt a warmth and a connectivity with her, which shortcuts in, you know, any, any sort of potential issue we may have down the line it was much less likely to sort of blow up because there was that sort of mindset fit um, that, that is so important when you're developing a culture. And that was the same really for all of the parties that I then worked with. I did a very diligent brief. I made sure that I spoke to as many people as possible for making a decision. And that the, there was that kind of gut feeling that there's a meeting of minds as well as a meeting of, of kind of competencies in terms of um, who, who I went on to work with. And how did you know who you needed? Um, again, I think as a because I'm quite um, process orientation. Again, perhaps that's my sort of research head. 
I kind of knew what I didn't know. And so I went off and asked a lot of questions. And I think, you know, one of the quite liberating things I found was being um, a learner again, you know, being, being in an environment where I genuinely didn't have a clue <laughs> what I was doing, but as a researcher, know, kind of knowing what I didn't know, um, it was actually really lovely to be a learner again and to be able to sort of, you know, call up um, uh, an R&D company and, and, and ask them how their teams are structured, you know? So I found that there were, the, where there were people who have job titles like flavorists and, you know, they spend their life tasting things. And, um, but I, I just took the uh, approach that, um, again, you often do in research where you admit where you are and you, you give the floor over to the people who you want to listen to. And so I didn't, find it difficult to kind of just pick the phone up I just pick the phone up and I ask people and I ask people what the normal process would be to develop a product from from sort of you know idea until until delivery into market and I I lent on people's kindness you know a lot of people took calls with me um, and just shared what they did and then from that I understood what I was missing and what felt like the most kind of um, logical way to develop you know definitely um you know, cul-de-sacs I went down where I had conversations and I felt that something would be valid and actually looking back on it, that wasn't the right way to have done things. And I think, you know, again, sort of capturing those learnings and, and moving on is what you have to do as an as a entrepreneur or a business owner in, in everyday life. Um, but sort of, I think that that ability to recognise when you are in learner mode and just just ask people, that's, that's kind of how I, how I navigated it. And then tell us now about the, the product. Uh, how do you use it? How do you take it? Uh, how is it different to anything else in the market? I, I sometimes describe what we're trying to do as, as being a, a sort of a supplement brand for the sceptics. So it, it's got research and it's got um, trackability at its heart. And it's also got humans at its heart. So what it is, is a range of powdered nutritional um, powders, uh, supplement powders, um, that are designed to nutritionally give you the foundation layer um, in terms of what your body needs as it biochemically transitions through the three stages of menopause. So you have the perimenopause where your hormone fluctuations are actually often at their, at their height, you know, and it's a very difficult phase for, for women. And it's often the one that we're less, least aware of, we kind of stumble into from about the age of 43 onwards. And you know, back to my story, it, had, it can have a huge impact on you emotionally, um, as well as physically. But if you look to nourishing your body with what it's lacking in terms of nutrients, that's a fantastic place to start. But I describe it as a, as a supplement brand for skeptics, because I, I am quite a skeptical person when it comes to products. Um, I, I really appreciate honesty and transparency in the brands that I buy from. And we were really keen to take that kind of researchers uh, perspective in, in what we developed. So each of the, the recipes that we develop are verified by doctors and nutritionists before they leave our lab, but then they're also tested by our community. So the women that um, follow M Powder on Instagram are invited regularly to take part in, in patient reported tracking, which means that they will be gifted the product for a couple of months. And in return for that gift, they commit to telling me <laughs> every week how their symptoms are responding to the powder in question. Um, that's all done uh, in an automated fashion on SMS. So we get a big data feed coming into the business that, that, that 
teaches us how to get better, you know, gives us a sense of, of where we're really um, impacting on symptoms and where we would perhaps want to refine the recipe to, to, to work better. So that, that information again is shared with the community. So when a product goes into market, people can look at it and, and see, you know, that 79% of women saw a reduction in this particular symptom after four weeks, or, you know, 30% of women saw this after eight weeks. So it, it gives a tangibility to what we're doing. And then for the customers that actually buy, that tracking continues. So if they choose to, which about 20% of our audience is doing currently, they can continue to track in the way that our trialists do. So when they buy a pouch, they're invited to take part in a tracking program. We monitor their data results each week. We, we, we offer interventions and additional support if we can see they're struggling in certain areas. So it becomes much more than a product offering. It's really a community that's driven by the women that buy the product. Uh, they co-create with us. You know, our recipes are refined as a result of their feedback. But also the interventions we offer ensure that you're not just, you know, we, we say very carefully to people, however hard we work, the powder is never going to be a silver bullet. You know, we're not going to fix menopause by you taking 30 grams of powder each day. So, you know, building around it, those interventions where we can look at someone and say, you know, your anxiety levels are really high this week you know here's some other thoughts from our experts in terms of what you could be doing you know have you considered acupuncture have you looked at your sleep habits um have you tried looking at adding additional protein to your breakfast which can help here here and here so we we're very proactive as a brand and so for those people that are fully engaged with that experience it can be much more than than just taking a supplement it really is looking at how you make midlife your superpower and how you change the way that you fundamentally live in order to flourish rather than survive and a lot of entrepreneurs we talk to um go through uh, a similar process of uh seeing a need developing a product but they normally always say the hardest bit is selling it mm. but, but you almost forget that bit of the journey because you're so wrapped up in building your product so how have you how have you addressed that? How do people buy M powder? Where can they buy it from? How have you thought about the selling parts of your business? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the interesting thing for us is um, the sale is is a result of of someone genuinely feeling better. Um, and we realised quite early on when we were doing our research that desk research, you know, that I was describing to you, where we were asking women to feedback on on their experiences of their menopause journey. What became really clear was I think it was 65% of the women we interviewed would feel more comfortable taking advice about what they could do in menopause from a friend than they would from a medical practitioner. You know, there's so little confidence now in the, uh, the doctor's uh, ability to diagnose effectively, you know, this, this natural life stage, but to sort of recognize it when someone comes into the surgery uh, displaying symptoms, that it's the women in your life that you tend to lean on. Um, and I think because we saw that early on in our research, it, it really gave fuel to our instinctive desire to involve women in the co-creation of our products. And what that has led to is that those trialists are, are really celebrated within our brand structure. They're, we call them our makers. Um, as a result of being part of any trial with us, they get you know, discounted product for life. They get free um, access to our experts we run specialist programs to support them throughout their menopause journey that is only available to them as a thank you for all of their feedback but what actually uh, was also at the heart of that was was recognizing that if we could help one woman that one woman was likely to tell 10 women in her social circle and, and you know that's that's really how grassroots brands grow and that's how community grows so 
in terms of our sales strategy, really, it has been about treating these women um, and listening to them, you know, with real heart and compassion and kind of having the conviction that that will lead to sales. So people buy directly from, from our e-commerce site, which can be notoriously difficult, you know, also with my background in, in, in uh, marketing and creative planning, you know, I know that the challenges that come with different channels and often it's that kind of brand awareness and the money you often have to put behind a product in order to actually gain traction with an audience. But for us, it has been very much about that word of mouth. And I think a recognition that what we're trying to do is, is, is mission and purpose driven as well as product driven that is leading to people finding us uh, and they're finding us because their friends are feeling better. And um, I can see that you're happy doing what you're doing. You have a great sense of purpose. Were you able to take the, the work of workplace happiness test? I was. And, and so I, I'm, I'm going to guess that you must have been in the 90s. I was. I felt a little bit like, um, yes, I felt like I'd, you know, again, completing with myself, I felt quite pleased with my score. Yeah, I got, I got 94%. But obviously a lot of it is to do with, as you say, the, the fact that I found my purpose and my boss, who happens to be me, uh, yeah. listens to me, um, which is, you know, so a lot of the questions, I guess, uh, were effectively about the fact that I am at this point in my, my career, sort of master of my own destiny. And that, that's a great feeling. And, and so what does the future hold, Rebecca? How do you see um, Empowder growing? Um, I mean, for me, um, the, the, the sort of ideal future scenario, if I'm looking back in, in five years, is that menopause becomes recognised societally, you know, as a, as, a, as a superpower, as opposed to something we endure for 10 years of our life, because it's quite a long time frame to live through. Um, and I think, you know, my hope in, in terms of the role that Empowder will play in that transformation of, of, of um, framing is around the kind of the, the community that we're building up. So I absolutely hope that our products are available globally. I hope that we inspire other brands to innovate. It, it, it continues to frustrate me that the menopause sector is seen as a niche market when 51% of the population goes through it. <laughs> and it's actually, you know, unlike uh, fertility and childbirth, it's something that every female will experience. Um, and so it's incredibly important that money is put into it, that research is invested in this biochemical stage you know we still don't know medically why women transition through menopause you know we don't know enough about what happens to the bodies it's it's, it's very very uh under uh um invested in in terms of medical um attention um, but also i think critically it's under invested in in terms of vc attention so <clears throat> for me as a business one of the biggest challenges was trying to explain the, 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 the unmet need that, that women have at this period of life. And so I would hope that in reframing it, we, we destigmatize the, the conversation and we encourage other brands to come into this space and that, you know, in five years time, alongside a lot of the good work that's happening already, you know, in the last 12 months, we've seen it be added to the secondary school syllabus as something that will be discussed within biology classes, for example. But alongside all of that great stuff, that's gonna hopefully ensure that the next generation of women uh, comes to this lifestyle stage more informed. I hope that there's a, a big groundswell in terms of the choices and the opportunities uh, to sort of take control of this stage of life and, and that they, there are more of them available to women. Well, it's a fantastic objective to have. And, and to conclude, two quick questions. The first one is, um, if you were to nominate somebody to do the, the work of workplace happiness test, who, who would you ask to do it and why? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I would probably ask um, one of our um, early hires. So we have a, 
um, uh, a guy in our team who I like to refer to as an extra miler. Um, and they, for me, have always been the, the most important hires are the people that have a job description, but they always go the extra mile. And that's kind of inherent in the personality. It's not something you can necessarily teach. So I describe Joe as our extra miler. He's uh, a male in a very female orientated um, business. He's young in a, in a midlife orientated business. And he has embraced this kind of life stage with such, uh, you know, it's so endearing to see a, a young male fascinated and equally as outraged by um, the injustice that we often feel when we're looking at the SATs. So I would like him to take the, the, um, the test because I'd be really curious to know how he's finding his experience in a startup, um, you know, whether we're serving him well in terms of the opportunities and the career progression that he, he, he can see ahead of him. Um, and I think, you know, I think as a, as a young business, the, the type of offering you have actually and that, that ability to kind of go in and look into how you, your, your own sort of satisfaction scores um, plot against um, others in your industry is, is something that's really important to have as a fundamental sort of check-in um, as you grow. And, and my final question is, um, what piece of music when you hear it makes you feel happy? Oh, um, I... <laughs> Um, I'm kind of quite eclectic, so much to my kids' horror, I will happily attend a Stormzy uh, concert as well as uh, listening to Elvis. Um, so, but in terms of songs that make me happy, it probably is a big sort of, you know, orchestral old school Elvis piece. I also love uh, Nina Simone's Here Comes the Sun. Brilliant. So, Rebecca, can I thank you very much for appearing on this edition of, of the podcast? You've been an inspirational guest uh, to hear about all that you achieved in, in the, the research world and uh, building your career and running businesses uh, and then taking on the opportunity to help you know, millions and millions of women. In fact, as you said, every woman around the world uh, help them through a life stage is, is quite inspirational. And I know that people listening to this podcast will be equally as inspired as I've been. So thank you very much for your time oh. and for all you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.